The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Here, welcoming you to a special episode of Wizards Half. Now, normally these are the episodes where we cover the stuff we didn't get to in the previous issue during our main episode. But as you'll recall, we last covered the Wizards Superman Tribute Edition. So, how do you follow up a special edition magazine? How about with another special edition? Yep, Wizard was all about creating one off magazines at this time, and the issue we're covering right now actually predates the Superman special by a few months, but it took us a while to figure out how to present it to you. So prepare yourself for the 100 most collectible comics presented by Wizard Magazine. Now, as you'll recall, Wizard began primarily as a price guide that mixed in editorials, interviews, and other scholarly comic book content, so it makes sense that they would create an 88-page guide to the books that were the most collectible in this era of speculative comics purchasing. I'll be getting to how we're going to tackle that list shortly, but first allow me to quickly run through the handful of feature articles in this magazine. First of all, we have a cover by Will Eisner featuring his most famous character, The Spirit. Some of you may have seen the bizarre Frank Miller-directed movie from a few years back or heard of your favorite comics pros winning Eisner Awards. Well, this is the guy who inspired all of that, and during the interview with this 75-year-old legend, we get a few interesting factoids. So, seeing that the magazine publishers of the 30s who were just reprinting collected comic strips from newspapers were about to run out of material for their, quote, funny books, the enterprising Eisner created a studio where he offered to create original comics content, which was a totally new concept. It turns out, though, Eisner was the only guy working in the studio originally and would just make up fake pseudonyms for himself to pad out the bullpen roster. Eventually, though, the demand for his material grew, and so did the income, so he hired a high school friend of his named Bob Kane to help out. He also had a young kid named Joe Kubert who would sweep up in the office, and Eisner muses, quote, Gosh, whatever happened to him? The spirit itself was legendary for breaking out of the simple square panel layouts and having a darker edge, more adult content in the adventures. So yeah, this guy was a revolutionary at the very beginning of the genre. Next, Chuck Tooley writes an article about grading your comics that is written with a mock academic style, giving grades to the hypothetical books people have in various conditions. For example, quote, mint is mint. It's not a grade where almost counts. If it's not mint, it's gotta be something else. And then he goes on to scold readers for lending books to their friends who will never take as good a care of the books as you would. Quote, went and loaned your iron fist to a friend? Now what made you go and do a thing like that? Where was your noggin? Don't you know that rule number one is never loan books? 
So in an era now where CGC grading is common and, quote, slabbing your books is a necessity to ensure you retain value, it's interesting to look back on a simpler time in the grading process. And it was fun that he added a humorous tone to it, just made it much more enjoyable to read through. Now, speaking of the condition of comic books, a restoration expert named Susan Ciccone breaks down the process of bringing books back to a sustainable condition to repair deteriorating paper, etc. So it's really interesting, though, her opinions on what books seem to come back from the brink. For example, she says, In my experience, early detective Batman, Action, and Superman, DC publications, are prime candidates for restoration because of paper malleability and responsiveness. There are exceptions, however, since particular compositions of inks, fiber furnish, and fiber sizes vary from one publisher to another. Marvel Mystery and Captain America, timely publications, for example, will react differently to certain procedures, not necessarily adversely, but the paper stock of these comics is not as cooperative. The most difficult books to restore are the Silver Age titles, such as Amazing Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Avengers, etc., the Marvel publications. The paper composition of these books differ greatly from the Golden Age comics with respect to size, weight, colors, and inks. Because of these complex properties, it is necessary to carefully choose between structural and aesthetic repair. So I just find that really interesting. Who knew that DC books held together better than those coming from that young upstart Marvel comics? But it's also interesting that she notes why and when you would actually need to restore a book, under what circumstances would it actually bring you some value. And she says that you actually don't want to do it if the base value of the book, she says here, it should be worth at least $200 to $250 in their present condition. With rates exceeding $75 per hour for simple cleaning and pressing, it is not cost-effective to request full structural and aesthetics enhancement on an item of lesser value you unless unique conditions exist. Yeah, so if you really want to restore that copy of a Super Pro number one, eh, it might not be worth it. Next up, though, speaking of Marvel Legends, there are also some brief interviews with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Now, these are separate interviews. I think they still were not necessarily getting along at this time. Stan basically explains the origin of the Marvel method, stating that he was writing all the books, editing them, and answering all the letters. So eventually, he had to start outlining plots to the artist and then would go back to fill in the dialogue when they handed him the finished art. So that's mainly the focus of his interview. Kirby basically just talks about being a workhorse, trying to make a buck, and actually praises modern day comics, saying, quote, The books are beautiful. The artists are very, very good. The storytelling is fine. They've made a fine art out of the field. So that's about all Jack had to say. It was interesting. In his interview, he had kind of this agent or handler, I don't know how you'd want to call it, who filled in in the blanks for him because it seemed like Kirby definitely just had like the blue collar worker workaday aspect. He didn't really dig deep into his artistic process. But also in the mix is former DC editor Julius Schwartz, who basically says his generation was better at telling original stories because they were raised on pulp novels and not on reading comic books, you know, so they didn't learn everything from the comic book format and then just regurgitate that. Also, Kirby actually does make mentioned that he too was steeped in pulp storytelling. So, you know, before comics, that's where you got all these fantastical tales. And, you know, that's about it for the feature articles. So, now on to the main event. 
the top 100 collectible comics according to Wizard Magazine. Now, most of these are Golden Age and Silver Age first appearances that you would expect. You know, it's Action Comics number one, Detective Comics number 27, Amazing Fantasy 15, Fantastic Four number one. So how exciting is it to hear about those books for the hundredth time? Yeah, not very. So I decided to highlight some of the oddballs or maybe the more obscure books featured on the list. So let's get started. All right, so the first one I have here is Motion Picture Funnies Weekly number one from May 1939. If you can find a copy of this in 1992, it would be worth $10,000 to $12,000. Let's find out why. It says here, discovered in 1974 in the estate of a deceased publisher, only seven copies of this comic are known to be in existence, and none in better than fine condition. Recently, a quote, pay copy, said to be in near mint condition, containing white pages throughout, was discovered, rumored to have been purchased from an estate. However, until the condition of the book is confirmed, it is difficult to predict the near mint value determination that may result from this find. The issue features featured the first appearance and origin of the Submariner by Bill Everett in an eight-page story. Unfortunately, due to the small print run and distribution, this first appearance was virtually unknown until its discovery in the 1970s. What until then had been considered the first appearance, Marvel Comics number one, was merely a later reprinting of this classic story. It's believed that the comic was a giveaway item for movie theaters to distribute, and as such was probably mistreated and discarded by most recipients. Although there were covers for issues issues 2, 3, and 4, copies of the actual additional comics are not known to exist. Although an innovative idea for the time, the interest in the idea apparently was insufficient, and the concept did not prove popular enough to warrant continued publication. So I just find that really interesting. It's just this obscure book, right, that was given away at movie theaters, and there's the real debut of the Submariner. Now, if you look at any of his trading card, anything else online, I'm almost certain they're going to tell you it's Marvel Comics number one. But hey, now you have the inside track. All right, so this next one here is Pep Comics number 17 from July 1941 by MLJ Magazines. It is valued at $1,000 to $1,200. Let's find out why. Origin and first appearance of The Hangman. A first in comics history is the first major comic character, The Comet, actually died, killed by a gangster's bullets. This may not seem to have major significance today when even Superman can be killed, but in 1941, the death of The Comet was a startling and unique event in comics. In the same issue and story, a new character, the Hangman, was created. The Hangman was the Comet's brother, and with his brother's death, he decided to take up crime fighting. His first mission was hunting down the criminals that had killed his brother. The Hangman was one of the more violent heroes of the 1940s, and even in his first adventure, he first haunted the criminals, then fought them, finally seeing to it that the ringleader was hanged by the state. In later adventures, there were frequent stabbings, hangings, stranglings, brandings, and impalings. The Hangman's frequent nemesis was Captain Schwastika, a costume Nazi saboteur whose sidekick had an ice pick instead of his right hand. The series was also steeped with sexuality, with a great deal of attention given to lingerie and cleavage. Oh dear, Pep Comics, what were you up to? So, if you guys recognize that name MLJ, just a few months later, check this out. Pep Comics number 22, December 1941, they changed their name for some reason to MJA. 
M magazines. Now this one's valued at $3,000 to $4,000, but check this out. The first appearance of that perennial teenager from Riverdale High School, Archie Andrews. The issue also featured the first appearances of Jughead, Archie's somewhat dense, hamburger-devouring best friend, and Betty, the kind, wholesome blonde in Archie's life. Archie's most likely the most successful non-superhero character ever created for comic books. Further, Archie has appeared in more comic books than any other character in comic book history. Archie was created at a time when teenagers were becoming popular entertainment stereotypes, fueled by characters portrayed by Mickey Rooney like Andy Hardy and Judy Garland. The publishers of Pep produced comics about superheroes, magicians, detectives, and other mainstream comic book concepts. In 1941, however, the editors decided that they should add some teenagers to the mix to see how the public would respond. In the years that followed, Comicdom's favorite teenager branched out, appearing in a newspaper strip on radio, an animated television show, and in numerous merchandising areas. Even after 50 years of publishing, there seems to be no end in sight for Mr. Andrews. Man, ain't that the truth. We still got that Riverdale TV show on the CW. You're seeing comics everywhere. So yeah, Archie is alive and well. But it's so interesting because this cover, it actually features also the hangman and the comet on the cover. So it's kind of interesting, you know, that they were still promoting the superheroes. But hey, we'll toss a little teenage comedy story in the background. Next up is Classic Comics number 1, October 1941. This is a big year for comics from Elliott Publishing. This is valued at $4,000 to $5,000. First in a series of comic adaptations of literary classics, another groundbreaker of a concept for the comic industry. As of number 35, the title was changed to Classics Illustrated. The series was initiated by Albert Cantor's Gilberton Company. The first issue featured The Three Musketeers. The American series saw the publication of 169 titles, and like the books that they adapted, almost all of the titles saw numerous printings. Many more titles were prepared, but were published only in Europe. In answer to the critics and parents that considered reading comic books a waste of time, or not really reading, the creation of classic comics meant that a comic book could be truly educational and should be, therefore, more widely endorsed by parents and teachers. The combination of literature and beautiful artwork was a winner, and the classic line of comics enjoyed enormous popularity. Additionally, in the manner that books are kept in print, the classics were reprinted at set intervals. Since the contents of the issue are identical, and there is no listing of what printing your copy may be, it is necessary to consult a price guide and turn to the back cover of the classic. On the back is an order form for issues available to be ordered from the publisher. The printing of the issue in hand can be determined by the highest pre-order number listed as available for ordering from the publisher. Additional information regarding distinguishing marks is available. So Classics Illustrated was brought out, you know, in response to all this, you know, burning of comic books and all those things. So it's pretty interesting that it lasted and it was so hugely successful. In fact, my mother-in-law, who lives in rural Montana, just pulled a whole stack of these out of her basement and messaged me. She's like, do you want these? And I will tell you, not my cup of tea, but I do have a friend who enjoys the Classics Illustrated books. So he was lucky enough to get a vintage pile of comics from her. So, how about that? Alright, next up here, going a little bit more mainstream, was More Fun Comics number 101 from March 1944. This was a national or DC publication. It was valued at $3,000 to $4,000, and it has Green Arrow and Speedy on the cover, but... 
This is the first appearance and origin of Superboy. By the mid-1940s, Superman's popularity turned him into big business. In fact, Detective Comics, Inc. changed its name to Superman DC. Superman was so big that everyone was imitating Superman in order to cash in on his success, resulting in numerous lawsuits against rival publishers. DC then reasoned that if Superman was this popular, why not do their own spin-offs? Thus came the adventures of Superboy. Although initially careful to show Superboy in the correct time period in which Clark Kent had been a boy, by the 1950s, the creators shifted the stories to the present day of the 1950s, showing then-current technology and events. In so doing, the writers ignored the fact that Superboy was living in the same time as his adult self. Ironically, DC's spin-off resulted in a lawsuit against DC. The creation of Superboy took place at a time when Superman creator Joe Siegel was in the army, and it was done without his permission. This was but one of the points raised in Siegel and Schuster's 1947 lawsuit against DC to regain the rights to their brainchild, to cancel their syndication contract as having been violated, and to recover $5 million they said Superman should have brought them in the nine-year period since its inception. Unfortunately for Siegel and Schuster, the court ruled against them on every point, except to find that DC had acted illegally as far as Superboy was concerned. For that, the two were paid an out-of-court settlement rumored to be $50,000 each. However, they were fired from the Superman strip, and Superman was no longer theirs. So yeah, I mean, that's a sad behind-the-scenes story there. Looked like it was a possible win for Siegel and Schuster, and still not this time either. Man. Alright, next up here is Millie the Model, number one, from 1945 by Marvel. It was valued at $300 to $350. The origin and first appearance of Millie. Millie was perhaps the most successful of the working girl comics, a popular genre of comics in the 40s. Millie was so successful, in fact, that she had several spin-off titles, including Life with Millie, Mad About Millie, and Modeling with Millie. The popularity of comics aimed at women resulted in the proliferation of comics like Millie, showing working women struggling to establish themselves both financially and and socially. These were bold ideas, but at the end of World War II, when the men returned home from war, they found many women doing the jobs they had left behind. This was an important period for women who wished to prove their abilities and worth to the American dream. Although other related genres which arose were popular among women, including romance titles like Simon and Kirby's Young Romance, it is comics such as Millie which were finally beginning to acknowledge the contribution and importance of women in the comics marketplace. So again, I mean, it's one of those things that seemed like for a long time publishers we're ignoring women and hey let's do this hey look at that women actually do read comics shazam so jumping forward into the marvel age of comics we have here x-men number one okay so a lot of people know this right september 1963 stan lee jack kirby put it together for marvel at this time though it's only valued at two thousand five hundred dollars to twenty eight hundred dollars that seems extremely low just based on how many copies Jim Lee and Chris Claremont's X-Men number one had just sold. But let's see what they say here. The origin and first appearance of Professor X, Angel, Beast, Cyclops, Iceman, and Marvel Girl. Origin and first appearance of Magneto. This issue was responsible for introducing mutants into the Marvel Universe. The original X-Men were misfits in the vein of Peter Parker, recruited by genius Charles Xavier, the most powerful mutant telepath in the world. Xavier intended to teach these mutants how to control and use their powers for the betterment of mankind. Although acknowledging that mutants, Homo superior, differed from the majority of mankind, Homo sapiens. Xavier believed that mutants and humans should work together, not against each other. This issue appeared in the same month as Avengers number one, but had far
far more impact. Who would have guessed that this comic would prove to be the most important introduction for the Marvel Universe, at least financially? The team would disband only to be revitalized in the mid-1970s with new and different characters. The X-Men have since gained enough members to split into two teams, figured in the genesis of three additional teams of mutant heroes, and been responsible for the best-selling book in the history of Marvel Comics, X-Men No. 1, 1991. But still, it just it feels like they would have been at least worth $5,000 you know, for a copy of that, especially since, as we know, the X-Men were actually not a hit when they first debuted, but they're saying here they were more popular than the Avengers? That just seems so hard to believe. Well, we'll take their word for it. Now, in the same year, DC released House of Secrets number 61, July-August 1963. It is valued at 100 to $125. And this is presenting the origin and first appearance of Eclipso, the god of vengeance. During a South American expedition, Bruce Gordon is confronted by a native dressed in black and purple holding a black diamond. Gordon dodges the native's attack, but is scratched by the diamond, which he then retrieves. From that point on, Gordon is possessed by an evil being when exposed to an eclipse of the sun. This being, Eclipso, has super strength and utilizes the mystical properties of the black diamond to further his plans. Eclipso has often worked on Gordon's subconscious, forcing Gordon unknowingly into situations where an eclipse would be formed artificially in order to permit his emergence as the dominant personality. Only the direct light of day could force the evil person into remission. Gordon was finally separated from his evil other half, a minor character of supernatural origins. Eclipso never gained the recognition of other villains, as he was rarely pitted against superheroes as foes. All that changed in the summer of 1992, when DC decided to thrust Eclipso to the fore, revealing him to be the most evil and potentially most powerful villain in the DC Universe. As the god of vengeance, Eclipso taps into the anger in every man's heart. He could be released with the touch of any one of the 1,000 black diamonds which each contain a portion of his soul and power. Once Eclipso is in control, the only thing that can shake his hold on a victim is the unobstructed light of day. But Eclipso, even though defeated by Earth's heroes, is crafty and continues to rebuild his strength. Yeah, how did this book make it into the 100 most collectible comics of all time? This is 100% like a speculative, you should buy this back issue. Eclipso's getting a push. He might be worth something. Uh, no. <laughs> Nobody cared about Eclipso in the 90s, and they certainly were not going to go find this back issue and pay 100 some dollars for it. What's interesting about this, though, so, you know, right there, we're in the 60s, and getting into the 70s, we have Amazing Spider-Man. Man number 96 of May 1971, only valued though at 40 to $50. However, this is the first Marvel title to deal with the drug issue and test the importance of the Comics Code Authority with the buying public. Since its inception in the 1950s, comic companies submitted each issue of their comics to the Authority for approval prior to publication. The subject of drugs was one which the Comics Code Authority would not permit publishers to include in their stories due to the seriousness of the issue. Marvel, feeling the importance of the storyline outweighed the potential loss of sales, published the issue and the two that followed without the Comic Code Authority seal of approval. Marvel felt it important to acknowledge the widespread use of drugs such as LSD and heroin and provide a frank look at the drug's effects on teens. Thus, for the three issues comprising this storyline, Marvel bypassed the Comics Code, a daring step for one of the major comic publishers to take, especially with one of its best-selling titles. When it became apparent that the repercussions proved less damaging than feared, other publishers followed suit, most notably in DC's Green Lantern, Green Arrows, 
issues 85 to 86, showing Green Arrow psychic Speedy as a drug user. As time went on, comics continued dealing with topics the CCA deemed unacceptable, and publication without the code is no longer considered harmful to the financial success of a comic. So it's interesting. It's not necessarily more valuable, you know, but it's an important part of history, so they're considering it a collectible comic. So it's kind of interesting how you choose to weigh your collection. Is it because it's rare? Is it because it features a first appearance of a major hero who's popular now? Or is it a piece of comic book history, just like that issue would have been? All right, so now it's time to get to the most modern book, okay? If this was actually fairly surprising to me because it is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Number one, from 1984 by Mirage Studios, Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, currently valued at this time at $600. Perhaps the most successful independent project to date, the creators of the Turtles have made tens of millions of dollars from this parody. The title alone indicates the variety of comic book genres being ridiculed, all of which were extremely popular at the time. Teams of teenagers, mutant teams, martial arts characters, specifically ninjas, and funny animal books. This title served as a major catalyst in the black and white explosion during the early 1980s for two reasons. First, the success of TMNT resulted in the spawning of numerous rip-offs and parodies, although none would ever come close to achieving the same degree of mind-numbing success the Turtles enjoyed. Second, every independent publisher had to believe it was possible for lightning to strike twice. If one independent comic could garner this much success, it was entirely feasible someone else with an equally original idea could do the same, thus the resulting independent explosion, which, unfortunately, in many ways, harmed the comic retail market more than helping it. So yeah, far as she would go was 1984, but I mean, if you're going to pick one, certainly the Turtles had it all together in a big package worth a lot of money. So yeah, we covered a few of the books there. I hope you learned a few things, lots of comics history in the mix, and if you're interested in this issue, you can find it on eBay for pretty cheap, and you could figure out the rest of the list there, see if you agree. It would actually be interesting to see if Wizard ever published another edition. This one says first edition on the front, so maybe down the line we'll see if they ever tried this concept again. But hey guys, thanks for listening to this mini episode. We will be back next Wizards Wednesday with episode 18 back into our regular format. It's Michael and I having one of our classic discussions. There's so much to cover in that issue, so we are excited to have you join us. Remember, go get some Wizards, the podcast guide to comics merchandise at our Tee Public store. Find it, and we will uh, definitely send you a prize if you send us a picture of you with your merch in use. You can also find us, of course, at Wizards Comics on Twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram drop us an email if you want to be on the show hey we're always looking for guests wizardscomicspod at gmail.com and of course be sure to check out our series of interviews we hope you're enjoying the wizard files we are having so much fun going behind the scenes with these former wizard staffers and it seems like they're enjoying it just as much as we are so if you have any connections to somebody out there let us know and uh, until next time keep your books packed and boring this has been a presentation of the retro network <laughs>